0: A few months ago, uh, while I was at work in my office here at church, uh, I was just about to respond to a text from my wife. I had my phone open. I was getting ready to type. And and, uh, as these things go now, right as I'm thinking about what to write, I get another text that comes through uh, from a buddy of mine asking if I want to play pickleball that evening. And so, you know, this is what phones have done to us. Rather than finishing the text I was already looking at, I just tapped on that notification and I responded, uh, I'm in. Then I went back to my other text thread and I responded to my wife, uh, love you, see you tonight. Sent that off. At least I thought I sent that to my wife. (laughs) As it turns out, as it turns out, I sent both texts to my friend, we'll call him Jeremy. Uh, I know that because four or five minutes later I got a text back. Now you have to imagine from his perspective, He's asked me, "Hey, do you want to play pickleball?" And in response, he got, "I'm in. Love you. See you tonight." He's got a He's got a decision to make, right? He's He's sitting there thinking, like, "Is this an accident or has pickleball just taken our relationship to another level?" Right? And do I have to respond? Like, is this going to be awkward if I don't say I love you back, right? So You know, I can only imagine he's sweating it out a little bit, but in the end, you know, he took the safe path, and he responded, see you tonight. Was that second text supposed to come to me? (laughs) And I said, yeah, sure, why not? Why not? (laughs) Now, there's several lessons the wise listener might draw from this story, uh, but there's one in particular that I think is a good reminder for us today, which is that when you're trying to understand a piece of communication, It helps to know a little bit about the context, right? That's a good reminder for us because this is our second week in our ongoing series about 2 Corinthians, but it's really the first week we're going to start walking through the text. Now, last week, Pastor Joel provided a lot of that very important context, if you didn't get a chance to hear that. I just remind you, uh, you can always find that on our website. And and because we're going to be in 2 Corinthians for a while, I think that's really worth doing. It'll help frame the letter uh, in its historical and social context for you a little bit. Uh, but before we jump in, because I think that's important, I want to briefly recap just a couple things that he covered last week that I think will help us make better sense of the opening of the letter. So I want to do that by looking at a timeline. I've got a slide for us here uh, that will give, we'll just walk kind of briefly through the, the, this relationship that Paul and Timothy have with the church in Corinth. It's a letter sent from both Paul and Timothy to the church in Corinth, but it's not the first letter. They have an existing relationship uh, that's been going on for a long time. First, as you can see up there, uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy actually helped plant this church in Corinth. You can read about that story actually in Acts chapter 18. The three of them just travel to the city of Corinth. They start preaching the gospel about Jesus. and as people respond in faith, they encourage them to start meeting together. They start teaching these people. Uh, they plant a church. That's how the church in Corinth gets started partly through the ministry of Paul and Timothy. Now, they stay with the church for about 18 months, so it's a good long stretch, uh, growing the church, uh, helping get it on its feet, but eventually they move on. They continue on in their missionary work, and after they leave, you know, ha- having left this young church behind, Paul does a, a very sensible thing, something that I- makes sense to me, you know, he, he, he's grown to love and care for these people. And so when he leaves, he sends them a letter. We'll call it letter A, because we, we don't have it in the New Testament. We have no other name for it. But Paul references it in 1 Corinthians. And as far as we can tell, it's just what you would expect of the church planter having moved on. He sends them a letter that's it's encouraging. It's some ongoing pastoral guidance and probably a reaffirmation of the truths he's been teaching in their midst. So he's visited, he sends this first letter, letter A, but then the next thing that happens is someone or some letter, news reaches Paul and Timothy from the church in Corinth that, that things over this period of time here have somehow gone awry. There's been a number of problems. Uh, one problem is that some new people have come to the church or new leadership has, has risen up that's cast doubt on Paul and Timothy because of their suffering and their poverty. And they've kind of said to the people in the church, they've said, you know, can God's blessing really be on these people when they're constantly suffering and when they're, they're always in poverty? Does that sound like God's blessing? I don't know. And so they, they used this to kind of cast doubt, not just on Paul and Timothy, but even on the message that they had been preaching. Uh, a second thing that we know, based on Paul's response in 1 Corinthians, is that a number of people had come to the church, they had decided to follow Jesus, but they had refused to leave behind their old sexual behaviors and practices. And so all of these issues together, and probably some more besides, prompts Paul to write the letter we call 1 Corinthians. So he writes this long letter, Uh, you can read it, it's right there in the New Testament, where Paul addresses some of these things. He tries to defend his calling as an apostle, he tries to set them straight on what it means He says, look, you've committed to follow Jesus. Here's what that needs to look like. So he writes 1 Corinthians. And and as far as we can tell, and this shouldn't surprise you, uh, this church gets this letter telling them they've gone wrong, they've they've got bad theology, bad behavior, and shockingly, that letter isn't super well received. Right? A lot of people are not happy to hear this. Uh, And so... Basically what that means is these problems keep simmering. They persist. And so ultimately that prompts Paul and Timothy. They're they're leaving on a new missionary journey. They're headed for Macedonia and they decide things are worrisome enough that they're gonna stop off at Corinth on their way there. And so that's what they do. It's a kind of surprise visit. uh, And it's what Paul will refer to in our passage today as his painful visit, his painful visit. Uh, Because as you might imagine, this visit is just full of those difficult conversations, full of confrontation, and even possibly Paul rebuking some people, and people maybe not receiving that super well. I mean, you can imagine. You know the situation. Just imagine what that must have been like. Paul says, he says at one point, look, I, I'm, I'm grieved. I, I, can't, I showed up expecting to be able to rejoice with you, and instead we have to hash out all of these really difficult things. Now, just as he did after his his initial church plant, they have this visit, it's kind of painful, but they're working through some things. And after Paul and Timothy leave, Paul writes yet another letter. I'll call this letter B. It's another one we don't have in the New Testament. But similarly, it seems to be, from what we can tell, a follow-up letter on that painful visit where he's trying to smooth some ruffled feathers, but also to reiterate, like, look, this is just the truth. This is what God has revealed in Christ, and this is how we need to respond. So he writes this follow-up letter. And then finally, so we've got all that shared history, finally we get to the letter we're going to look at today, 2 Corinthians. So thanks for hanging in there, but, but I think it's just important to know as we dive into this, you know, this letter doesn't arrive in Corinth as a bolt from the blue, Okay, this is coming at a specific point in their ongoing relationship, and it's going to draw on some past things that have happened, and if we don't understand that, it's going to be really hard to make sense of where Paul jumps in. But now we've got enough background, let's jump in. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 3 and read through verse 11. So here we are, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received a sentence of death, But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf, for the gracious favor granted us, and answer to the prayers of many. Now, You can see your your Bible probably has this opening section divided up into two paragraphs. uh, And there's two parts to this that we just read that make up what I would call sort of the standard greeting, the standard opening uh, that is common to almost all ancient letters from the Greco-Roman world in this time period. So you have the opening greeting in verses 3 through 7, and then it's followed by a little personal update from Paul and Timothy in verses 8 through 11. And as I say, you can open to almost any letter, any of the New Testament letters, and you will find this kind of beginning, the opening greeting and the personal update. Uh, you'll find it in almost any letter you, you might encounter from the Greco-Roman world. Uh, and in fact, I think it's worth pointing out. I think you'd notice if you looked at letters that you write or you receive, if you still write and receive letters, that we still do this, don't we? I mean, my cousin, I was thinking about this because he likes to... He lives in San Diego, so he likes to poke at me a little bit, so it's, it's not uncommon that when he starts texting me about something, he'll begin, hey, hope you're having a good week, hope you're staying warm, the, the weather in Minnesota looks terrible. Oh, by the way, a little update on me, the weather in San Diego is 75, sunny and beautiful and I'm outside all the time, right? And we, we do that kind of thing almost without thinking, but it's the same basic form, little greeting to me, little update about him. Uh, Paul and Timothy are simply doing the same kind of thing here. This is how people wrote letters. But just because it's the standard form doesn't mean that Paul can't sort of bend this to his purposes. He's actually very good at this. Uh, And he he does, as he always does, he uses the standard greeting, these first few verses here, to introduce some of the themes that he's going to return to over and over throughout the letter. I want to highlight two of them. First, notice right away, verse 3, how Paul uses this form greeting to establish and remind them of their unity in Christ despite their past strife, right? Look how he starts out. Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. So he opens with a reference to their common Lord, Jesus, and then he uses that first person plural all the way through, Paul uses this greeting to call attention to their unity. They still have this bond in Christ. Second, Paul uses this little greeting to remind them, and I think this is is kind of brilliant but subtle. And again, if if we know the context, it'll help you see it. Notice what Paul calls attention to. He calls attention to to Jesus and specifically how Jesus won his great victory, how he accomplished salvation through what? What? through his suffering on behalf of others. He then reminds them, oh, by the way, you know, Timothy and I, we have been enduring quite a bit for your benefit also. He makes it explicit, verse 6. He says, look, just as Christ suffered to achieve salvation for all, so we too have been sharing in the sufferings of Christ for the benefit and salvation of the people of Corinth. Again, here's where the context, I think, can illuminate something for us. You know, why would Paul, why, why open the greeting this way? I mean, this is sort of a, an odd thing to, to put in the greeting. Well, he does it because the Corinthians had previously dismissed them, at least some of them had, because of their suffering and poverty. They had seen that as a mark against them, as proof that they weren't actually uh, partners of Jesus. How could they have God's blessing, people asked, when they were suffering so much? But notice here, before Paul even addresses this head-on, and he will do that later in the letter, he's kind of preparing the ground here, right? And so he, he tells them, he reminds them, that without the sufferings of Jesus, nobody would have salvation. Nobody would have salvation. And then he connects their suffering during their ministry, explicitly with the suffering of Jesus in his ministry. And, and the result is, far from being an embarrassment, Paul says, look, I'm not embarrassed by our sufferings. To me, they are proof that we are partners in the work of Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Now, if you remember that overview Joel provided last week, you know, this is a theme Paul's introducing here right at the beginning, that he's gonna revisit over and over again throughout the letter. It's something he really wants to, to hammer home to this church. All right, so that's the first paragraph. Let's look at the second, where Paul gives his little personal update here. Speaking of suffering, sharing in Christ's suffering, he tells them that he and Timothy have been through a brutal time on their trip to Asia. Uh, In fact, at one point, he says, things were so bad that they despaired of life itself. They felt like they had received a sentence of death. Here again is our theme of suffering for the gospel. But notice, now we introduce a new theme, followed by, right? uh, This happened, Paul says, verse 9, so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on our God who raises the dead. God, Paul says, has delivered them, and he will continue to deliver them. Then he wraps up this update with a nod to both themes the theme of unity uh, and God's power revealed in weakness. I kind of like this too. This is a great little move. By thanking them sort of preemptorily, he assumes they're praying for him. He says, thank you for praying for us. It is through faithful partners like you praying for us that God continues to deliver us. Now, I think Paul's doing a couple things here with this little update. First, he's building rapport, just fundamentally. Again, don't lose sight of the fact. This is a letter written from real people to real people. Paul's building some rapport with them, rapport with them by sharing his life and genuine struggles with this church. But I want to emphasize he's doing that not in a manipulative way. Uh, He's not trying to trick them into empathizing with them. What he is doing very obviously is trying to set an example. Uh, He's going to make it clear as the letter goes on that, that this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to embody and to live out the gospel. God has made them a family He and Timothy in this church in Corinth, through Christ, and the proof of that ought to be that they treat each other like family. And that means sharing burdens with one another. It means praying for one another and comforting one another. So that's one thing he's doing. Second, he is continuing an ongoing point from previous letters and visits. Uh, And again, I know I've I've already said this. You're going to hear it several more times. And and that is he is trying to make a point about what it looks like for God's power to be on display. Paul and Timothy share how their recent hardship in Asia, how through that recent hardship, they have learned to trust more fully in God. Again, I I think this is kind of incredible. You got to remember, part of the problem they had not that long ago is that that they were being, he had opponents trying to shame him because of his sufferings. And here he's encountered new suffering. And yet, instead of trying to hide that, right, to make things easier with these people who already doubt him, Paul puts these new sufferings front and center. He almost boasts in them. He says, no, no, no. This is not something to be ashamed of. You shouldn't be ashamed when you suffer for the gospel. In fact, Paul says, it's through things like this, it's through situations like this, that God chooses to reveal his power. This, he says is how we learn to trust in God and not in ourselves. Uh, in March March 28, 1990, uh, the Chicago Bulls beat the Cleveland Cavaliers in a, in a game that is pretty forgettable, other than the, in the moment it was exciting, it was an overtime game. Uh, and the only reason anyone really remembers it is because Michael Jordan, Scored 69 points by himself in that game. If you're not familiar with basketball, that's what we would call a lot of points, okay? A lot of points. Uh, And so after the game, naturally, like I say, you know, mid-season, it's not that important in the grand scheme of things, this is the storyline. And so all the reporters, of course, rush into the Bulls locker room and they all surround Michael Jordan, which they're probably going to do anyway. They all want to comment for Mike on his big game. How did it feel? Man, how did it feel to, to be able to, to just make everything you threw up there? So everyone's jockeying, trying to get a, mic, a microphone close to Mike, trying to get a comment for their stories. Uh, and some intrepid reporter, I don't know who it was. You know, came a little bit late to the party and realized right away he's not getting anywhere near Michael Jordan. And so he kind of looks around and he he sees another guy, uh, Stacy King, standing over here by himself, teammate of Michael's. He played in the game a little bit, came in off the bench. And so he just thought, well, can't get a quote from Mike, but maybe I'll get one from this guy. So he goes over and says, hey, Stacy, uh, uh, how did it feel? What was it like to to, to be playing in that game tonight with, with Michael just on fire like that? And, and Stacy offered up what I think is one of the great all-time sports quotes. Uh, he said, I will always remember today as the day Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> it's an all-time great sports quote. But, but, you know, I was thinking about that this week. I think there's actually a deep insight here. You know, if you were Stacey King, and he was actually a pretty big deal when he was drafted, you might have, you could have been tempted to be defensive about a game in which you came in off the bench and only scored one point. I mean, what's wrong with you? Jordan scored 69, you can only score one. But he chose, rightly and humbly, I think, to embrace the role that he played, right? You know, that night, the truth is, The last thing the Chicago Bulls needed was for Stacey King to shoot 10 more jump shots than he shot. The last thing they needed was for him to drive to the hoop over and over and over again. His teammate was Michael Jordan, and it was Michael Jordan on one of his better nights. That night, the Bulls didn't need Stacey King to be the hero. They didn't need him to put the team on his back. What they needed him to do was to pass the ball to Michael and let Michael do his thing. On those nights, you don't need to shoot the ball, you just need to pass it. Paul, I think, is trying to make a similar point to the Corinthian church here about life in God's kingdom. You know, it's a very human thing. Uh, We are always tempted to exalt ourselves, to to put ourselves in the role of the hero, to seek out those situations that are going to win for us glory and acclaim. But what the cross of Jesus has shown us is that God's power is put on display not when we exalt ourselves, but when we humble ourselves. God's power is put on display not when we trust in our own talent and abilities, but rather than when having reached the end of our talent and abilities, we finally turn to God and put our trust in him. That's the lesson Paul and Timothy learned in Asia. It's the lesson he's trying to repeat and really drive home for the church in Corinth. And I would submit to you, it's a lesson that still has a lot of value for us today. God's power is on display most powerfully, not in those moments when we exalt ourselves, but when we humble ourselves. All right, that brings us, that's the sort of greeting section. That brings us now to what I would consider uh, the start of the main business of the letter. Uh, the greetings and personal updates are over. Paul and Timothy are now going to begin addressing the reasons they wrote this letter in the first place. So look with me. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 4. Paul write, Paul continues on. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies That we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will now come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus." Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or Do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For however many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness. I will stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now, Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share in my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. All right, so there's a lot there. Let's walk through that a little bit. So first, the issue. What is this first issue that Paul wants to address in the letter? Well, the first issue is is apparently a change in their travel plans. Uh, If you remember from last week, or if you noticed there just as we read, um, Paul and Timothy had made this previous surprise visit to Corinth on their way from Judea to Macedonia. And their plan, when they made that first visit, and even afterwards, was that they would stop back in on Corinth on the way back, right? So they, they made this visit. They had all the painful, difficult conversations. They sent a letter after that to kind of smooth some feathers. And their initial plan was that they, they hoped and prayed that those letter that letter, that visit would do its work. And when they stopped back through on the way back, they would find a healthier church. So that was the plan. Uh, but and Even though they wanted to visit again, and Paul stresses this, they had planned to visit on their way back, they wanted to visit on their way back, but they changed their plans and they skipped this return visit. And now Paul wants to explain why they did that. Now, the tone of verses 12 through 14 suggests that criticism has already reached them from the church, right? People know they were planning to visit and they're unhappy. They feel like Paul and Timothy broke their word by not stopping on the way back. And so in response, Notice the first thing Paul does, that first section there, is he appeals to their past relationship and their time together. Remember, when they planted the church, they stayed and worshiped with them for a year and a half. And so Paul can say, Look, you know us. You know how we conduct ourselves, how we conduct our business, and you know that we are not fickle. We aren't saying yes one moment and no the next. He says, we have always acted among you with integrity and sincerity. We have deferred not to worldly wisdom, but to God. And so then he goes on in verses 15 to 17 to say, look, because you know that, you should know that we didn't make this decision lightly. Uh, This is the product of the same desire to follow God's direction. In other words, I think what you can see Paul saying here is this. He says, look, you you guys should know us better than that. When you heard we didn't stop on the way back, you shouldn't assume the worst, don't assume the worst. You should assume we made that decision as we've made all other decisions with integrity and, and, and by submitting to God's will and purposes. Next, so that's, that's the first thing. He wants to say to them, look, we're, we're, you, we're not fickle and you know that. We are people who keep our word. But then next, he goes on to respond to those who, who have apparently accused them of skipping the visit, because they no longer care about the church in Corinth. And you can see that, right? They they find out Paul and Timothy did not stop on their way back, and they're like, oh oh yeah, I see how it is now, right? He had this difficult, painful visit, and now he's just done with us. They've washed their hands. They're over the church in Corinth. And Paul says, that's not at all true. That's not at all true. Look at verse 23. He clarifies, they did not skip their stop in Corinth because they no longer care for the church. Paul says, actually, we decided not to stop on the way back Because we care for you, it's because we love you that we chose to go straight back to Judea. He then lays out, when you get to chapter 2, 1 through 4, that they changed their plans because they love this church, and they don't want to cause them, or really themselves, unnecessary grief. Look, he's worried, and again, if you remember, these are real people and real situations are just like you and me. I think this becomes very understandable. They had a tough visit where they had hard conversations. And Paul recognizes, man, the wounds from that are still fresh. And so Paul becomes convinced, you know what? There's a risk if we stop through on the way back, we're just going to pick off those scabs. We're going to reopen those wounds. We're not going to help anything. We're just going to rehash all the same problems. And so Paul says, you know what? Uh, I think it'd be better for them and better for us if we just moved on. We just went straight back Judea. It's not that they're ignoring the church. It's because they love them and they want what's best for them. So here's the question, though. If they didn't change their plans because they're fickle, and they didn't change their plans because they don't care about the church anymore, why did they change their plans? What was it? How did they become convinced that it was better not to visit? Well, here's what I think we can reconstruct from the details we have. So again, They made this previous visit. They confronted the church about their disobedience to Christ. And you know, get this, not everyone was happy about that. You can only imagine, right? Some people were no doubt hurt by some of the things Paul had to say. Some people were probably angry. Paul himself indicates he was deeply saddened. He and Timothy were anguished by this visit. It was an emotionally draining experience for everyone involved. Uh, He I love, he kind of says this, and man, I can relate to this. He says, look, I wanted, I expected that when I showed up, I could just rejoice with brothers and sisters in Christ that I love and care about deeply. But instead, instead of rejoicing with you, man, we had to have all these tough, tough conversations. And so he says, you know, initially my plan after doing that was to follow up and to make sure everything was was going okay. But then, he doesn't say this explicitly, but I think we can we can see pretty clearly this is what happened. As they continued on, they're on in Macedonia, they start traveling back. They're praying every day for this church. They're bringing it before God. You can see Paul and Timothy together just God, please be at work in this situation. Please protect them. Please keep them on the right path. Give us wisdom, Lord. How, what should we say to them? How should we minister to them? What can we do to help this church thrive? And through this wrestling and prayer, they become convinced of two things. One, that their visit might reopen old wounds. He makes that pretty explicit. But I think a second thing that we can see here is God impresses upon them that right now, the right thing for them to do is simply to wait and to trust in God to finish the work. Paul and Timothy had done their part. Now they needed to trust in God to do his part. They decided not to risk reopening old wounds. They decided instead to pray and to leave it in the hands of their heavenly father. Or you might think of it like this. They decided to leave this difficult and raw situation in the hands of their gentler, wiser, and more powerful partner, the Holy Spirit. Uh, My dad, many of you know, was also a pastor. He was called to be the pastor uh, of a new church plant in Mansfield, Ohio, before I was born. Uh, originally, the church met in a in a local Christian high school, like in their gym. They'd set up chairs every Sunday morning. But eventually, right around the time I was born, uh, they built their first little building. It was not much more than a sanctuary and a couple offices and then a fellowship hall downstairs. It's a style you're probably familiar with. Uh, but my dad will tell you that as exciting as that was, it also added a lot of pressure because all of a sudden, now there's a mortgage, right? And there's pressure there's pressure to make sure the giving stays where they were hoping it was going to stay. There's pressure to make sure people keep showing up on Sunday, uh, keep growing the church. That's, they built this thing in faith, right? So he's feeling the pressure. And so right after they got this new building, he was working every single week. I mean, he's very methodical, reaching out to people, visiting people, contacting people every week, checking in with them and also kind of drop in like, hey, great talking to you, hope I'll see you Sunday, right? Every week he's trying to hit a certain number of people because he's just, he's just worried sick that attendance is gonna fall off, the building's gonna be foreclosed and what a bad testimony that would be. But finally one week, right? One week he's, he's been grinding away at this. He gets so sick that he can't do any of that. He's just totally knocked out of commission and as he's laying there sick and miserable, He's just racked with anxiety about what's going to happen Sunday. Here for this first week, he hasn't contacted anybody, he hasn't visited anybody, and he's just thinking to himself, man, is anyone going to show up? Is it going to be just this small little service? Is it going to be sad and depressing? Uh, at the end of the week, he starts feeling better, and, and he's, he's doing, in the meantime, the only thing he can do, which is to turn to God and go, I, I'm sorry. I, 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 You've got to help us, Lord you gotta, you got to make this happen. I can't do it. I'm sick. I have no energy. I'm knocked out. You gotta, you've got to show up for us. That Sunday, they showed up, and you know, he's there early getting things ready, and people start trickling in, and then more people start coming in. And eventually, he realized, someone came to him and said, look, do we have any extra chairs? We ran out of seats in the sanctuary. we got to set some up in the lobby. It was the largest attendance in the history of the church up until that time. And it happened following the week when the senior pastor did less than he'd ever done in his entire experience with that church. And he took an important lesson from that that stuck with him for the rest of his ministry in which, as you can tell, he drilled into the the heads of his children as well, which is God is faithful to finish the work. And over and over and over again in, in ministry, we need to be reminded of that. We in ministry need to be reminded all the time We feel the pressure, but we of all people should remember that God's power is often, almost always put on display most powerfully in those moments when we are humbled, when we recognize that we have come to the end of our abilities and we turn to God and put our trust in him. But I do do have to say that I think some of the most difficult moments of obedience are moments like that when God either asks you, or in my dad's case, forces you to let go and to trust in him. And it's all the harder, I think we all know, when you're deeply invested in the outcome, as Paul and Timothy certainly were. Look at that long history with the church. The choice for them to bypass Corinth and head straight back to Judea was obviously difficult. I'm sure there was plenty of anxiety. I can only imagine their conversations on the road as they're thinking about this going But man, what if they've gone off the rails again? What if they're drifting and we're not there to restore them, to put them back on track? What's going to happen? What will become of this church we've invested so much time and energy into? The temptation to go in person and to micromanage that must have been very strong. And yet as they prayed and sought God's direction, I think God impressed upon them. He gave them the clear sense, no, no, you've been obedient. You've been faithful. You've done what I asked you to do. Now you need to trust me to do what I do. And here's the thing. God can be trusted. He can be trusted to do his part. He is always faithful. And he will finish what he has started. As we close, look back at verses 18 to 23. You may be noticed I skipped over those. I'll tell you why. I don't know if you're like me, but the first time I read that, that little chunk there feels to me like it's out of place. You kind of run into that and you think, wait a minute, what are we talking about here? Uh, Right before that, Paul's explaining, hey, here's why I decided not to stop back and visit on the way back from Macedonia. And then you get into this thing about God's yes is always yes, and all his promises are yes in Christ. And then you're back to, well, we didn't visit not because we don't love you, because we do love you. And it feels like, you know, If he had a computer, he accidentally pasted something from a different section right into the little middle of his explanation of his change in travel plans here. It feels like a non-sequitur. Until you realize that it was hard for Paul to release the situation to God. I think if you can see that, then the rest of it falls into place. And I think you can see Paul in verse 21, 22, 23, talking to himself just as much as the church in Corinth. Look what he says in verse 21. It is God, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Look, Paul has played a crucial role in the life of this church. He helped plant it. He helped grow it. uh, He has helped shepherd it and correct it and keep it on the right path. But is it Paul? Is it Paul who makes the church in Corinth stand firm? Without another visit from Paul and Timothy, is the church in Corinth going to fall apart? Is it just Paul and Timothy holding this church together with their bare hands? You know, it would be easy for Paul to think that, especially given the history that we know. It would be entirely understandable. But that's not what Paul writes. What Paul writes in verse 22, 21 and 22, is that, no, 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 it's not Paul, it's God who makes you stand firm in Christ. It's God who has anointed you all. It is God who has put his seal upon you. It is God who has given you his spirit as a seal and guarantee of what is to come. It is God who is always faithful. It is God whose yes is always yes and whose every promise has been fulfilled in Christ. And God can be trusted, even with the church in Corinth. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, how Paul and Timothy, I imagine, felt on their way back from Macedonia. Uh, you know, maybe you have a situation or a relationship. Maybe there's people in your life uh, that, that are at the same time, they're so difficult and precious to you, it's so valuable and it's so fragile that you fear to let go. You fear to entrust that person or that relationship or that situation. You just fear to entrust it to anyone else, even to God. You think, God, you can step in here, but I'm not letting go, right? I don't know if you've been there. I have. And it seems like Paul was there, and God had to gently remind Paul, no, 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 you are not holding this church together. I am holding this church together. You don't have to be afraid. Paul, I can be trusted to do my part in this church if you can relate to that, if you've had a similar situation in your life this morning, if you've had a, a face or a situation come up in your mind as I've been talking, I, I simply want to leave you with this this morning. I, I would pass on to you what Paul passed on to the church in Corinth, which is that God is faithful and good, and he can be trusted. He can be trusted, even with the most difficult and fragile and valuable people, relationships, and situations in your life. He can be trusted, so trust him. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we give thanks because you have proven yourself in our day, in our midst, you have proven yourself to be a good and faithful God. But Lord, you know us. You made us. You understand how hard it is sometimes when it's, when it's people we love, when it's situations that we're so deeply invested in. God, it can be hard to entrust those things to anyone else, even you. So God, I pray that you would remind us of your great faithfulness, that you would remind us of your power and goodness, and that Lord, you would help us to let go, to trust those things to you, to trust that our good and wise God will show up, to trust that, that it is when we humble ourselves that the power of God is put most fully on display. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.